several years ago, I don't remember how long ago it's been now, but it's been quite a few years back. I was serving on jury duty in Anderson County and spent the week there with those folks in that jury duty situation and uh, found out that one of the men in that jury duty was a believer and we began to talk and share things and and he asked me one day, he said, man, have you ever heard of this book called The Passion Promise? John Avant wrote it. And I said, no, I've never heard of it. He said, well, do you know who John Avant is? Well, I, I kind of know who he is. I think I've heard of his name and, uh, you know, pastor of Brownwood Revival, all of that. And we, we talked the rest of the week about Passion Promise. Every time I saw him, he brought up that book. Every time I saw him, he talked about that book. He got me so excited about the book. He said, I'm telling you, this book wrecked my world. And so I bought the book. And it wrecked my world too. And I began to follow John Avant and read. I got another book in my library that he wrote and just began to follow how God was using him. He's been the uh, pastor in some very prominent churches. He's been the vice president of North American Mission Board. Uh, most recently, he was a pastor at First Baptist Church Concord in West Knoxville, Tennessee. About four weeks ago, he gave that up. Uh, to become the president of Life Action Ministry, which is a ministry dedicated basically to helping America experience revival and spiritual awakening. And so I, I had a chance probably a month or two ago to meet John personally in Cleveland. I was leading a pastor vision trip up there, and that was my chance to kind of introduce myself and get to know him personally. And I want you to know, folks, uh, I really believe in this man, and I believe in the message he's going to share. Would you welcome to Mount Airy, John, Dr. John Avan. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. I tell you, I, um, I love you guys already, and I don't even know you. I just, I just think it's so cool what you're doing. I, I think, you know, in this day when uh, you, you can hardly get two people in one church to, to get along, and uh, we got churches dividing all over the country, and it's so sad, and to, to come and to see two churches coming together to say, you know what, there's not much else that matters more than revival. And, uh, and, it, and it blesses my heart. And, uh, and it's just been a, a joy to, to get to know your, your pastor. You know, we, we share some, some commonalities. It's pretty, pretty cool. I mean, the church that I, that I, I just left, um, you know, we worked in, in Cleveland, planted churches in Cleveland. I know you guys work in, in Cleveland. Uh, I grew up part of my childhood in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, and so that's just kind of weird that, you know, we planned this and uh, and yet we're working in the same, same city. Uh, my, my brother, if anybody, uh, anybody's had a very, very sick child in Greenville, uh, my brother's Dr. Michael Avant, and he, uh, uh, he runs the, uh, the, the uh, pediatric ICU unit there and uh, just loves the Lord. Hopefully he'll be with us one of these nights if there's not too many sick kids. And, um, uh, and I grew up not very far from here in Hendersonville, North Carolina. I'm a mountain boy, and uh, I grew up... Um, preaching in, in, in churches. I drove up and I thought, man, that, look at this beautiful church. Look at this beautiful view. It, it looks like the churches I preached in when I was young, except a whole lot smaller than this and uh, way out in the, in the beautiful countryside. And I just, I feel right at home with, with you guys. And thank you so much for, for being here tonight and just sharing this, uh, this time together. And, you know, this is a very strange and wonderful time of life for our family. Wish my wife could be here um, for this, y'all need to have her come sometime and do a women's conference. She's a, she's a pretty special lady. But um, about, uh, about four weeks ago, uh, we resigned a church that we loved so much. My wife used to say, be careful. Don't love that church more than Jesus. Be careful. You can do that as pastor if you're not careful. Loved this church. And um, 
And we resigned and, 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 and left everything because um, years ago the Lord called us to be missionaries. And we've said all along, Lord, whatever you want. I mean, we, uh, the churches I've pastored, I said, look, if, uh, if you want to call me, understand you're going to get complaints. You're going to get complaints that he's always overseas. He's always, uh, yep, that's what you, and that is going to be true. And I'm going to bring everybody I can get with me. Everywhere I can go, here in this country and everywhere else, because there's nothing more important than people knowing Jesus. And I actually think revival might, might mean that we get out of church more than we get in church. Jesus' life mission statement was, he said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And, and, and the word church in the Greek, by the way, is ekklesia. It means called out, not called in. So it may be what we, we do in a time like this is, this is kind of the spiritual gas station, but you don't park your car at a gas station, right? So we come here to get filled, but then God's going to, he's going to send us out. And we've told the Lord this, you know, all of our lives. And, and uh, a few months ago, he said, do you really mean it? Do, do you really mean it? Would you leave your salary, go raise your support, do everything, everything I tell you to do? Would you really do this? Um, because Life Action Ministries that we've known about and loved for a quarter century uh, approached me about being uh, president of the Life Action Division, which oversees all we do in uh, local churches. We have three teams of about... I don't know, um, probably about 40 right now in churches all over America. You think churches won't do this anymore? Look at you. You've about filled this place up on a Monday night. And here's what's happening. There's a desperation in our day, and people are realizing, I've tried just about everything. I give my time to everything. I give my time to sports. I give my time to music. I give my time to everything under the sun. If you've got enough money, you take all different kind of vacations, and, and it's still empty. And the people that can do the most of that, the richest people in the world, spend the most time in rehab and have the highest suicide rate. That doesn't make much sense if those things are going to fill you up. What's happening, I think, in our day, I think we're on the verge. I think we're right at that point where we could see God move again in a mighty way. You know why? If you've been swimming in a sewer most of your life because nobody ever told you there was a fresh flowing, flowing spring close by, and suddenly somebody picks you up out of that sewer and you can see it, you might, you might decide to go swim in that spring. And I think our whole culture has been in the sewer so long, they're just starting to wonder, is there any thing else. And so we're starting to see churches wake up and say, we've got to take some time like you're doing in these days to say, Lord, what do you want to do in us? I mean, what, what, if our kids win the ball game or, or our team wins or, 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 or my, my job gets better, I make more money or all those things may be fine, but none of those things are going to matter at all in a hundred years. People are starting to come back to their spiritual senses and say, you know what? Maybe we ought to set aside some time in our life to seek the Father, to see what he might do. And so we told our church, we love you. We love you more than we can say, but we love Jesus more. And we can't stay in one church any longer. God showed me years ago in 1995, I'll tell you the story tomorrow night of what happened in a church that it was impossible for anything to happen that could become a national and even worldwide movement. There, there just wasn't any way that could occur in the natural realm of things. But we saw it. We lived it. We experienced it. And tomorrow night, I hope you'll be back. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you as much of the story as, as I can tell in one, in one message um, so that we can hope again and know that God still moves in this way and he wants to again. What, 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 since we've seen that, every time I talk to people that were a part of what the Lord did in those days that I'll tell you about tomorrow night, here's what I hear from them. We, we, 
we, we just we can't do business as usual. We're so discontent in our churches the way they are. We, we've never been able to get past what God did in those years, and we so want to experience it again. And finally, when Life Action approached us and said, would you, would you lead us to go to the whole nation and the whole world, to every single church you can? Would you, would you travel most of the time? Would you do anything God tells you to do and lead this wonderful ministry to do it as well, to make sure that as many churches as possible and as many Christ followers as possible know what it means to walk in the fullness of all God's revival, we had to say yes. And so we're about a month into this new life. I was a pastor for 35 years. Three years of that, uh, three years I was a missionary. So 38 years in ministry, 35 as a pastor. And for the last four weeks, I, I wake up every morning, I go, I'm not a pastor. And that's okay with me because I get to be with you and with other churches and, and, and lead our incredible team in ministry who are ministering to so many people, even right now as, as we speak. So thank you so much for entrusting these moments um, to me, and I, and I hope that, that I'll be worthy of your trust and of your giving your time to be here tonight. Um, I, I think revival has become a word that we're very careful at Life Action, even how we use it, because it's, it's, it's such a misunderstood and misused word that it's, it's very easy to just use it in a way that doesn't really matter, or to think that revival is something that, that it, 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 it really is kind of in the past, and revival of the past is very crucial and significant. We would not be a nation without the first great awakening. We would not have continued to be a nation without the second great awakening. But most of the things that we do today in church, I, I love, I come, every time I come into a worship service, I just wonder, what's it going to be that I'll be able to tell them, did you know that what you just experienced was a result of a great awakening. How many of you love that old hymn, Jesus Paid It All? It was a great awakening in 1858. We probably would not have survived the Civil War as a country without the great prayer revival of 1858. In the aftermath of that prayer revival, a young lady was sitting in a church, and it, it wasn't going really well. She felt like that, that the revival had waned. She, she, was, she wanted so much to, to, to sense the Spirit of God move in her, in her church, and, and, and things were kind of droning on, and she didn't know why, but she did something you probably shouldn't do. She opened up a hymnal and took a pen because she didn't have any paper, and she began to just say, Lord, just let me pour out of my heart what I really feel, the revival I feel in my heart. And she wrote these words, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. In the middle of the aftermath of that revival, that great hymn was, was written. I was a teenager, and a man named Keith Green wrote a song called There is a Redeemer. We just sang it. That incredible song came out of the Jesus Movement Revival, where this is why I think we could be on the verge of a national movement again. Because if you, if you were alive during the Jesus Movement of the 60s and 70s, nobody would have thought there was any hope of revival during the hippie days, you know? When, when young people, this young generation was just dropping out left and right, and everybody said, there's no hope for this generation. Anybody hear that these days? Anybody hearing about millennials these days? You know, you know the ministry that I lead? Our teams are made up mostly of millennials who are 18 to 25 years old who come into the churches we serve and give children and students a model, an example of a young adult who's given everything away for the sake of the gospel. Don't tell me this generation's gone to hell. I'm watching what God is doing as he's raising up a revival generation. But everybody thought that about the hippies in the 60s and 70s. 
But I walked into a Jesus Movement church, First Baptist Church, Hendersonville, North Carolina, where God was just breaking out among students. I'd never heard the gospel in my life. And I met Jesus that night. And I was a musician. I was drawn to music. And if it hadn't been for musicians like Keith Green, that at the time, by the way, were very controversial. Very Because con- he, I mean, things like, you know, stringed instruments in the, in the middle of church. I mean, who would think of something like that except the Bible? But other than that, you know, and, and so Keith Green wrote those songs, very controversial at the time. I'd probably still be lost without it because it was songs that reached my soul, but now we're singing them together across the generations. You see, revival has changed the world over and over and over again. And the great thing about movements of God is that you never know how You never know who, you never know when, but you always know why. It's always for the glory of God, for the good of his people, and for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Why wouldn't he want to do that again? We know that he loves us. We know that he wants his commission fulfilled and he's going to come again. So why wouldn't he do it again? But you know what? It could be that you're the one he's going to start with and that these two churches are where it's going to begin. That's what's so cool to me about this new life God's called, called my family to, is knowing that anywhere, anytime, anyhow, with anyone, God might move. If I had time, I could tell you why Billy Graham's conversion was the result of one 16-year-old girl in the 1904 revival who stood up in a group of mocking teenagers and said, I love the Lord with all my heart. And years later, Billy Graham came to Jesus because of that. Don't ever underestimate what God might do with you. All right. I want to preach a message tonight. Um, I've never preached before. Uh, I, I, I shared some similar thoughts at the Billy Graham Center, which actually led to my going to Life Action because Life Action leaders were there and, and heard this message, and we began to talk after that. But this is different. I, I, I prayed about, Lord, what, what, what would you have me to share tonight? And he, he, he led me to the same title that I it's preached at the Billy Graham Center, but some differences in the message. The title's very unusual. Here it is. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Um, I've had the opportunity to be in all 50 states, especially when I was at our mission agency, and to talk to pastors over the last decade, 15 years particularly. And really over the last five years, I'm hearing more and more and more pastors and leaders saying, we don't know what to do. What is going on with our culture our people are afraid. Our, our, our families don't know how to function anymore. We have issues to deal with we never even thought about when we were younger. Now, now the things that used to be viewed as moral are now viewed as immoral. I mean, it, it's, everything is turned upside down. The culture of church life is different. About 15 years ago, the average active Baptist came to church um, th- three times a week for something. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. Some would come Wednesday night, church training, visitation, a committee meeting. We had plenty of Baptists who, man, the, the, the family of God, the community of faith was their life. But the average was three times a week. Today, the average is three times a month. So the, the average active Baptist now doesn't do much anything at come to worship, and that's only a few times here, here and and so pastors and leaders are going, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this anymore. I, I've, I've had three pastors in the last few weeks of very large churches tell me, I just need to quit, I guess. We're reaching more people for Jesus than we ever have, but our church declined last year. I don't know how to lead anymore. I don't know what to do. And, and, and I've stopped and I've said, wait a minute, you need to understand. Any church today that's, that's just plateaued 
is actually growing because people are coming less often. The whole culture has changed. And, and, and it's not just pastors. It's, it's many of you. It may be your child or your grandchild or, or your work situation where you're just going, what is going on in our country? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to think anymore about, about the, the country we live in and the life that we have before. I just don't know what to do. Do you know what? The Lord showed me when I first preached a message, different message by this title, the Lord showed me that if that's the way you feel today, that is a wonderful thing to feel. Because as long as we think we know what to do, God will let us try. When we reach a point where we go, I really don't know. I really don't have a plan that seems like it'll work. The only thing I know to do is cry out to the one who always knows what to do. And maybe, just maybe, our churches, has to start with churches first, not, not, not the government, not anybody out there. It has to start with us. Just maybe we're starting to say, we don't know what to do. And so, Lord, would you show us what to do? Now, let me give you some really, really good news, and I'm serious about this. You, you are living in the greatest day of revival, I believe, in the history of the world. Uh, and I'm not the only one that believes that. Some of you are going, uh, I don't understand what he's talking about. It looks a long way from revival to me. The reason why we feel that way is because we often forget that the Lord loves all of the nations just as much as he loves us. And right now what we see in the world is revival almost any direction we go. You can see revival like we've never seen since the book of Acts today. The only problem is you've got to get on an airplane to see it. Right? But it's everywhere. I mean, it, it's it's unspeakably wonderful what God is doing. Do you know right now conservative estimates are that 30,000 people a day in China are coming to evangelical faith. They're being born again. They're not joining a church. 30,000 a day in China are coming to know Jesus. There are more born again people in China now than there are communists. Let me say that again. There's more born again people in China than there are communists. I want you to think about what it means for 30,000 a day in a country to come to Jesus. You know what that'd be like? That would be like every single day in Easley, every lost person in this city coming to Jesus and reaching somebody else too. Well, every day, the whole lost population of Easley getting saved and leading somebody to Jesus with them and doing it again tomorrow. You know, if 30,000 people a day, by the estimates we have of the lost population of South Carolina, if 30,000 people a day came to Jesus, every single lost person in the state of South Carolina would be saved in 100 days. I mean, is that, is that worth praying for? Is that worth believing God for? And that's just one country. It's, it's everywhere. God is breaking out everywhere. Ethiopia has a movement right now of massive discipleship evangelism. It's not just people being saved, but it's somebody being saved and immediately saying, teach me to be a leader, and then multiplying that and mentoring that. It's, it's a, a nationwide revival movement. Now, everything I'm telling you tonight about what God's doing in the world comes from either personal observation or from exact quotes from missionaries whose salaries you pay, all right? So, for instance, let me tell you about Iran. I don't know where that just blew. Something just blew off. Where'd it go? Underneath the pulpit? Completely underneath? I've never had that happen in my whole life. It went underneath it? <laughs> Glory to God. See how, see how complex that sermon is? It's scribbled on a piece of paper right there. <laughs> we almost lost it forever. 
I'm just going to be up here talking a little bit after that. All right, no, the, the greatest revival maybe in the history of the world is taking place in the Muslim world right now. More Muslims have come to Jesus in the last 15 years than in the previous 1500. Let that sink in a moment. And this is documented by multiple missiologists. Missionary friend in, in Iran, he, he, is in, he doesn't live in Iran, but he goes, he's in Iran a lot. He says the greatest revival in the world right now is happening in Iran. In, in, in India, I, I can't even begin to tell you the thousands upon thousands that are coming to Christ. Brazil, Guatemala is now 25% evangelical. You could hardly find an evangelical not that many years ago. 25% of the nation is evangelical. Most of the mission work I do right now is in the Middle East. I've been in, I think, eight Middle Eastern countries. And I want to tell you, what is happening right now in the Muslim world is nothing short of a great, massive spiritual awakening. In one country that has a little bit of religious freedom, there are open churches. My wife and I have helped serve there for about 15 years. Our daughter lived there for a time. One of my best friend's wife was murdered there by Al-Qaeda. And uh, we said, we'll help her place be filled. And this country allows churches to be open, but the Christians there can't stand Muslims because Muslims have killed so many that they love. They won't reach out to Muslims. It'd be dangerous for a Muslim seeker to go to church. Isn't that pitiful? Isn't that terrible? We prayed for a decade for God to break that grip of prejudice and hatred in Christians toward Muslims. What is now happening with ISIS is chasing refugees into all these countries and suddenly these Christians are watching whole families show up with nothing and ISIS has wrecked and ruined their lives and they're showing up going, we, we can't stand our own religion. Is there anybody else that has any hope for us? And the church's hearts have been broken and they've opened their arms and now the churches that were half empty are jammed full and half the people there are Muslims who have come to Jesus. I mean, I've seen this with my own eyes. In one country that I can't mention, twice now we have been to, to minister, to kind of sneak pastors and ministers over the border to a safer place and minister to them. They, they could leave, but they won't. And I, and I just got back two months ago from this, and, I, and, and, and everyone there had lost loved ones for the gospel. Everyone there had had people murdered for the gospel. And I said, why do you guys stay? Why, we got you across the border. Why don't you just stay? And one pastor said, Brother John, very educated, he speaks perfect English. He said, Brother John, we prayed all of our life for what God is doing now. It's Pentecost in our country. He said, ISIS has caused people to flock to Jesus. They're thanking God for ISIS because life with Jesus is, is more important to them than avoiding death. In our country, just having our own comfort is more important than anything else. But in countries like this, we're seeing leaders that are just all in for Jesus. And Muslim sheikhs and imams are coming to Christ by the dozens and dozens and dozens, burning their old stuff. Being, they're being murdered left and right, but they can't stop it. The enemy can't stop it. He can't stop it. Nothing he can do can shut down the great revival that God is bringing. I want to show you one, one thing. and Man, I, I've regretted ever since this happened. Letting my phone die because I got about six seconds of this. And I wish I had an hour of it because that's how long it lasted. I was preaching in an open air church facility, the best way I can describe it without saying where it was, in a terrorist neighborhood. 
I'm really, I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not that brave. I just, I just thought, man, I, I know the Lord has told me to do this, but this is crazy. This is insane. But we had 15 young men, 15, who had had dreams about Jesus and had come looking for somebody that knew who he was, and they'd all been saved. And the young pastor there said, would you check them out? Would you disciple them? And I talked to them, and every one of them had a crystal clear testimony. And so we set up this, this plastic pool, and we climbed in, and we baptized them all. And there were people, it was open air, looking from the buildings in these terrorist communities. And there was a knock on the door. We had security guarding the door so nobody could blow it up. Knock on the door, and security was trying to stop these two men from coming in. But they were saying, please, please. Please, we, we need to know Jesus. And they were two terrorist jihadist soldiers. And they came in and they said, we're so tired of hate. We, we promise we're not here to harm anyone. We want Jesus. We want him. We want that message that pastor was talking about. And, and, and I, I said, okay. We shared with them. We led them to Christ. They start taking their shirt off. We had to stop them taking all the clothes off to be baptized. We said, no, wait, wait, you can't be baptized now. Your neighbors are watching. We'll do this in secret. No, we're not leaving without being baptized. We took two terrorist jihadists, and we lowered them into the waters of baptism. We don't even know if they're living or dead. We know many like them that have refused to be secret, have laid down their life now for the gospel. But I was there. I saw this. And everybody there was either a Muslim seeker or a believer who had come to Christ from Islam, and they didn't know what to do with themselves. They just knew they were watching an absolute miracle. And so you know what they did? When they saw these men baptized, they grabbed makeshift instruments and they started to play and they began to dance for Jesus and they danced for him for two hours. This is what it looks like. Let's see if the video works. About six seconds. I mean, y'all, it is on. We are a part of the greatest awakening in the history of the world. I don't know about you. I don't want to live the rest of my life and miss it. The Lord's not stingy. He longs and desires to move and work here. But it might be the wrong question to say, Lord, will you not send revival? Right question might be, why are we missing it? What needs to change in us so we don't miss it anymore? And maybe the wrong prayer is just, oh, revive us, Lord, revive us, Lord, because, man, God has just convicted me so much from Isaiah chapter 1. Let's, let's look at this briefly. This is not our primary passage, but I just want you, to, I want you to see something that's really serious business. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, the Lord says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. He's actually telling them, I don't really necessarily want your revival service. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates it. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Listen to this. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I'll not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In essence, the Lord says, just stop praying for a little bit here. Oh, I don't ever tell anybody to stop praying, but the Lord is, is, is saying, if what we're doing is coming to church because we're supposed to and praying 
And then if we're not comfortable or we don't get what we want at church or we don't like the music or it's too loud or too soft or we don't like the preaching or what, do you know, um, we don't have any of that where revival's taking place. I asked a pastor, I said, do you count in the Middle East in one of these countries? I said, do you count attendance? He said, well, of course. It's critical for us. I was a little surprised because that's not really the impression I got from them, that they were all about numbers. Uh, he said, don't you count attendance? And I said, well, yeah. It's probably overboard where we are. He said, huh. I said, and I, I just thought, hmm. I said, what, what's the purpose? What do you do with the attendance count? He said, well, we count because we know how many people are in the family of God that we serve. And if somebody's not there, they may have been kidnapped or dead or they're sick. So we go minister to them because why else would they not be there? We worship the king. I said, are you telling me that you count because everybody comes to worship? Well, of course. They don't do that in America? He said, man, you've got to be, you've got to be really seriously ill not to worship the Lord where we are. He said, he's our life. He's our life. Man, this is strong stuff to me to hear the Lord say, just stop a minute. Examine your heart. Before you start just saying, yeah, yeah, Lord, revive us, revive us, revive us. Revival is not a return to the good old days. It's not making church like I liked it when it was different. It's none of that. Revival is laying ourselves down and saying, Lord, anything for the sake of the gospel. But then he goes on and he gives us beautiful hope. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. See, in our day, we, we expect the government to do all that. God says we're supposed to do it. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the word, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is straightforward with us. He says, I want to revive you. I'll wash you. I'll clean, cleanse you. I'll make you new. I'll, I'll give you a life you've never known before. I'll give you a church that makes a difference right where you are. I'll do things you've never even dreamed and seen before. He says, I'm really, really good at that. But if you just want to be comfortable and hang out at church... You're on your own because I'm not interested in it. That's the word of God to us. I know it's strong. I, I didn't come here to make you feel bad. I, I, I just know this. If, if I'm in my own power and in my own flesh, there's no hope that anything good can come from me. And there's no hope that anything good can come from Mount Airy, from Calvary Hill. N nothing on our own, nothing by our own traditions. But, but, but when we lay ourselves down, and say anything, Lord, for the sake of the gospel. There's nothing he can't do and won't do in and through you. Turn to Revelation chapter 3 for a few moments. Revelation chapter 3 has a passage from um, about the church of Laodicea in verse 14. And I've never understood it. Never understood it. It's always confused me. And um, one day, not too long ago, the Lord hit me between the eyes with something. And I thought, maybe I'm crazy, maybe I'm not thinking about this right. But I checked it out with a, a mentor, and uh, 
uh, and, and friend, uh, President uh, Paige Patterson of Southwestern Seminary. He's actually, if you have his commentary on Revelation, he, what I'm about to teach you, he actually writes in the commentary. So at, at, least, at least I know somebody else thinks that this is the right interpretation of this. Verse 14 says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, now most people believe that the word angel here should be translated messenger. We don't know, honestly. Um, the word angelos, we get our word angel from it, uh, means angel or messenger. It can mean a human messenger or it can mean an angel. Uh, most scholars believe in this case it's messenger because it doesn't make much sense to write to an angel. But it does make sense to write to the messenger or the pastor of the church of Laodicea. And so I, I believe this is a letter to be given to the pastor to be shared with leaders and then with church people to say, what are we going to do about the state that we're in? I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous or passionate and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered, sat down with my father on his throne. Why would the Lord want us to be cold? He says, I wish you were either hot or cold. I, I, I wish you were cold. Most people historically have interpreted hot to be on fire for Jesus and cold to be lost. Well, it's always confusing me because the Lord doesn't want anybody to be lost. He tells us that. So I've never really understood this passage. And so one day I was studying. I thought maybe there's something about Laodicea itself that would help me understand what the Lord is saying because he's speaking to us, but he was speaking first to the church in that setting in the first century, right? So I started studying the area, and it's actually a tri-city area. There's three cities very close to each other. Um, the city of Laodicea, the city of Colossae, and the city of Hierapolis. You can see the ruins of all those cities today if you go to them. Now, here's the interesting thing, the water supply of those cities. Okay? Colossae had an historically wonderful water supply. In fact, still to this day, there is a cold water spring. It comes out of the ground cold, and people will come there just to drink from the, the uh, spring at the ruins of Colossae. Now, Hierapolis was the exact opposite. Hierapolis was um, about three miles away from Laodicea. Colossae was farther, 10 miles away, but they were all close. They all were neighbors and knew each other, would go from place to place. But Laodicea was known as a spa town, or Hierapolis, rather. They had hot mineral water. People would come from everywhere. You ever sat in a hot tub? Ah, oh, you know? People would come from everywhere to sit in a natural hot tub. They had arthritis. They were sick. They would come there. And there were also minerals in the mud that had healing properties. Laodicea, on the other hand, didn't have hot water, and they didn't have cold water. They didn't have any water supply. The only water they had was not drinkable water. So archaeologists didn't know this until not too long ago when they discovered an aqueduct had been built from the closer city, which they would have liked to have gone to Colossae. It was too far. They built an aqueduct from the city of Hierapolis to bring water to Laodicea. Well, guess what? 
When it left Hierapolis, it was war. It was hot, hot mineral water. When it made the long three-mile journey down the aqueduct and it got to Laodicea, what kind of water was it? Yeah, it was lukewarm. And it was also the worst-tasting water you can ever imagine. You ever had mineral water? Some people drink that stuff on purpose. If that's you, there's something wrong with you. I'm serious. There is something. My wife will drink that nasty stuff, that, that sparkly mineral water. She'll drink it like she actually wants to drink it. You know, I don't understand that. But imagine drinking mineral water that was lukewarm. That was all they had in Laodicea. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew what lukewarm meant. I believe that what the Lord was actually saying was not that I wish you were either on fire for Jesus or lost. I don't think that's what he was saying. I think he was saying, you know what you're meant to be? You know who you're meant to be as my follower? You're meant to be refreshing. You're meant to be like a cool spring to everybody that encounters you. And you're meant to be healing, like the healing waters of Hierapolis. But because you're not healing anybody, you're not helping anybody, you're not ministering to others, you've tucked away to yourself in, in, in the fortress mentality of church they had become, because you're not refreshing anyone, the lost world doesn't know you, you don't know them. You know, we make the lost world our enemies. Maybe they didn't allow to see it too. We don't, we don't, the lost people are not our enemies. They're our mission field. And we, we, we point our fingers at all the horrible things they do. Lost people do lost things. What ought to be shocking is when Christian people do lost things. But why are we going to be surprised when lost people ask, act like lost people? Of course they do. So we shouldn't be angry. We should be missional toward them. I think Jesus was saying, I want you to be refreshing. I want you to be healing. And maybe the reason the Lord is breaking out all over the third world is because they have nothing else to consume there but Jesus. They just have nothing else to consume there but Jesus. And so he just leaks out of them everywhere. Maybe, I've wondered, I pray. The people I work with now say, you know, John, why, why do you think God's not brought awakening? There's not been, I don't believe there's really been a national movement of revival, not even a spiritual awakening, just a national movement since what I'll tell you about tomorrow night spread to college campuses everywhere. It's been, it's been a quarter century at least. And I'm asking a lot, why, why, why? I, I don't know the answer to all that, but I do wonder if maybe... We think we want revival, but what we really want is just to be entertained. And until we say, enough, Lord, enough, that's not what I want anymore. It's not what I want anymore. It's not about what I like. It's not about, you know, I think, by the way, I think in most churches, revival might be in the hands of senior adults. Listen, I, 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 I'm getting close to being a senior adult myself. But he, he, here's the deal. We're going to lose. We're going to completely lose the next generation if we don't, as older adults, say, you know what? It ain't about me anymore. We got to get behind our pastors and say, do whatever it takes to reach my grandchildren. I do not want my grandchildren to go to hell. I don't care what the music sounds like. I don't care how loud it is. I don't care what you got to do differently. As long as we proclaim the word of God, we got to do anything, 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 anything to reach the next generation. It's not about me. I can go in my car, go to my house, do any music I want. I, I, can, I can read the Bible any way I want, but today, the older we get, the more mature we should be. The less it should be about me, the older I get. The more concerned I should be for others, not myself. And maybe the Lord is saying, I can't trust this generation with a revival yet. I, I, I've got to find a church 
where the people will say, anything, Lord, anything. And if we're not refreshing and healing, maybe the Lord wouldn't trust us with a revival. Just, I, I want to ask you to really examine your own heart. I've been asking that in my own life in this new season of ministry as I, as I lead and serve in new ways. I, I want to be used of God. I, I, I sure don't want to mess up. Life action's been around 47 years. I don't want to mess it up. So I'm saying, Lord, I examine my own heart. Would you examine yours in these next few nights? And would you ask yourself, when people see me coming, are they glad? I mean, when somebody sees me coming, a Christian, do they go, I know I'm going to be encouraged? Or are they, are they probably going to get the latest gossip or the latest complaint? When a lost person sees you coming, you know, the Bible says that the, the early believers had favor with the lost world. Why is that? Because they loved them. And most lost people don't know what love is like anymore. You don't believe it? Go to the same restaurant for a long time and just pray for the server. That's it. Just say, can I pray for you? They may not even, they may say no thank you at first. But just keep asking. Ask if you go back and thank the cook for working so hard. And then try this one day. Just say to the server, you know, I don't know what you believe about anything. This isn't even high pressure. Just say, I don't know what you believe about anything. I'm a follower of Jesus. I just love him so much. But you're a lot like him. And I go, what? Oh, yeah. The Bible says that Jesus was a servant. And the greatest thing you ever do is serve. You spend your whole day serving. I don't spend my whole day serving. You spend your whole, every time I've ever come here, all you've ever done is serve me. Thank you for that. You helped me think more about Jesus today. You watch what happens. You know how I know that for sure? You know how I know how much people that just serve at restaurants need love? We taught our church that. We taught our men's groups to go in and women's groups to go in to restaurants, pick the same one, love on everybody. After doing that a while, we said, you know what? Let's invite every server that we've been ministering to to come to a red carpet banquet called Serve the Server. And we'll just bless them. We'll just bring, we'll just come and throw a banquet for them. Do you know how many servers showed up? 250. Maybe the Lord is just waiting to see if we'll get out of the pews and go love lost people. And if we'll cross the aisle to that person that hurt our feelings and forgive and be forgiven, start being refreshing and healing again, then the Lord might go, yes, now. Now they're ready. Maybe we make revival too hard. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's all. Maybe the Lord's just waiting to see if we're ready to be refreshers and healers. Doug Nichols is a missionary in India, and he got tuberculosis and years ago in India and still now in places. If you get tuberculosis, you go into a hospital called a sanitarium. And because he didn't want to be different from the people he was trying to reach, even though he was an American, he, he went into the hospital with all of the sick and dying people he was serving. And he thought, this will allow me to witness to them. And he brought gospel tracts and nobody would look at them. They couldn't stand him. You're American, you rich Westerner. They, even though he was there sick with them, they wouldn't listen to him. One night there was an elderly man in the bed next to him. And he saw the elderly man try to get up in the night to go to the bathroom. And he was so weak, he fell back down. He began to cry and he soiled himself that night. The next morning, the smell was so bad, a nurse came in and saw he'd messed himself up and she slapped him. Said, you get up and go to the bathroom on your own. She cleaned him up and the next night, the same thing was happening and this man began to cry and he was so weak with tuberculosis and age, he couldn't get up. Doug Nichols, sick himself, said, Lord, help me to help. Help me to help. And he got up and he went to this man and he reached down and the man cowered. He thought he was going to hurt him. And he said, it's all right. And he reached down and he picked up his frail body and he carried him over to the bathroom, which was a hole in the floor, 
held him by his shoulders for him to do his business, carried him back. As he laid him down, the man kissed him on the cheek. The next morning, as soon as it was daylight, there were people standing beside Doug Nichols' bed. He goes, what's going on? They're smiling. One of them had a cup of tea. Gave him a cup of tea. One of them said, those um, booklets you've been giving out, could I have one? He began to give them out and give them out and give them out. And pretty soon, everybody in the TB ward was coming to Jesus. And a revival movement broke out in that part of India. And Doug Nichols said this, you know, I tried everything. I had all these plans and strategies for revival. But all I really had to do was take a trip to the bathroom. That's it. Maybe the Lord's just waiting to find a church that will love each other and love the lost like that kind of scares me that 17 and 18, really, they're kind of about us in the Western world. Um, when, when he's writing about, you know, you're rich and you've prospered, you need nothing. You know, you know what Laodicea was? Laodicea was a rich community. It was a banking community. It was a community that made the raised sheep that gave the best wool and made the most beautiful garments of that day, so it was a fashion industry. It was also a medical center where they made eye salve that went all over the world, but, but the Lord says, listen, you, you, you think you have these wonderful clothes, but you're naked, and you think you have this, this great eye salve, but you're, you're blind, and, and you think you're, you're rich, and you're this banking community, but you're, 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 you're poor, and, and I want to be honest with myself. I want to be able to come to the Lord and say, Lord, that's me. That's me so often. And I want you to change me. But how? Verse 19, such hope. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those whom I love. Church of Laodicea was the worst church you could find in, in the whole Bible. You know, there was nothing good to be said about it. But the Lord said, I love you. And that's why I'm reproving you. And I call you to repent. You know what the word repent means? The word repent means to turn. To turn. It, it doesn't mean anything other than just to, to turn. It's a military word that means about face. But the point is, the question is, where do we turn to? And Jesus tells us, turn with zealous passion. And hear my knock on your door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This has been the most misinterpreted verse maybe in the whole Bible. This is not an evangelistic verse. The Lord is wanting to knock on the hearts of lost people. Other verses teach that, but not this verse. This is to a church. This is to believers. Jesus is saying to Laodicea, you're inside the church and I'm out. And I'm knocking to come in. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with you. And you with me. Mm. The Apostle John had heard the literal knock on the door of Jesus. The literal knock on that Passover before Jesus died. You see, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was the last one there. All the other disciples were already in there and they were mad. You know why they were mad? They were mad because um, every house that would host a Passover dinner had somebody who was the lowest of the low, a slave, a servant, who was just on the lowest rung of the totem pole. And his job was to wash feet. 
and nobody had washed their feet. Amen. The door opens and it's Jesus. Maybe he looked around because he'd taught them for three years. Maybe he looked around wondering, hoping, has anybody gotten it yet? Does anybody understand yet what it means to refresh others, to heal others, to serve and love others? He looks at their faces, scowling at each other, and he knows they haven't gotten it. He sits down with them for a moment. He looks and wonders. So he gets up, and he goes, and he gets a towel and a basin. Do you understand why they washed feet in those days? I don't want to be gross here, but if you don't understand that, you won't get what Jesus is calling us to if we really want revival. There were no sewers like we have them in those days. Every street had a groove in the middle of the street where sewage would be dumped and hopefully it would, it would run, they usually would build the streets at a little bit of an angle and they'd run down to some horrific place. But it would rain and the stuff would wash over and everybody was in open-toed sandals. It wasn't just to be clean, this was even a matter of health. Because when you came in from outside from a long day in the dusty, sewage-filled streets, you had stuff between your toes you don't even want to imagine. And the maker of everything, the king of the universe, takes a towel and a basin of water, and he kneels down, and he starts taking the sandals off of his wayward friends, his broken disciples who just didn't get it and only wanted their own way and their own comforts and somebody to come take care of their needs. And the king of everything got between their toes and got the waste matter and the sewage and washed it with hands that would soon be nail-scarred. Peter says, you're not doing this to me. That if I don't wash you, and you're not of me, you don't have anything to do with me. Then wash all of me, Lord, wash all of me. And Jesus went back to work. Washing. Washing. And maybe, Maybe tonight, in the next couple of nights, maybe the Lord would just say to us, it's not that complex. Yes, I do want you to pray. Yeah, I told you in Isaiah to stop for a little bit here. Don't just pray empty prayers. But I want you to pray. Then I want you on your knees in a different way. Because somebody in this place is hurting. Somebody in this place needs you to forgive them. Somebody in this place needs forgiveness. Somebody in this place needs Jesus. Somebody in this place needs encouragement. Somebody where you go to school, somebody where you work, somebody at a restaurant, somebody you're going to meet before we're back here tomorrow night has the gunkiest, most awful stuff between their toes. And then anybody going to get it out unless you love Jesus enough to follow him.
And if we don't love him enough to follow him, he'll keep looking for somebody who does that he can trust for the revival. And when he finds people who love him enough to give themselves away, I think he's going to use that people for a mighty move of his spirit. I'll finish with this. Pick it back up tomorrow night. Oh, gosh. In the 1870s, I believe it was, a tradition started in Yosemite. Anybody been to Yosemite before? A few people have? I'd love to go there. Tradition started. It's quite a tradition. Um, there's a place called Glacier Point. It's a giant waterfall. And in the summer months, it flows beautifully. And a... Um, a man got an idea one night. What if, what if we built a bonfire at the top of Glacier Point and then slowly pushed it over at night? And they tried it and they couldn't believe what happened. It became a waterfall of glowing embers that went on and on and on as the fire fell. And it became a tradition. Every summer night in Yosemite, campers would gather at the base for almost a hundred years. And the bonfire would be built. And the master of ceremonies, as the tradition developed, there at the bottom, would shout up with a, a megaphone, Is the fire ready? And they would shout down, The fire is ready! And then he would say, Let the fire fall! And the fire would come down. Tradition ended in 1968, but I have a picture of it, except there's no bonfire in that picture. They were astonished. No one had ever noticed after the man-made firefall stopped. They realized that the canyon, the waterfall, at just the right time on a summer sunset created a different kind of firefall, one that only God could do. And the picture you're seeing was not taken 100 years ago. I believe that was taken just a couple of years ago. All you're looking at right there is the work of God. And God is wondering and watching and waiting to find a people who would say, I am so sick and tired of what man can do. Let the fire fall. God let the fire fall. Let us see you do something. Only you can do. I long for it. I got to have it. I can't live without it. I'll die for it if it takes it. But let the fire fall. Let the fire fall. Let the fire fall. And if that is your heart's desire. If that is what you long for. If that's what you're willing to pray for. Then would you stand with me. And let's ask God tonight. To begin letting the fire fall. In our lives. God we just bow before you. Lord and in just a moment. We're just. We're going to sing. And we're going to respond. In any way you, you see fit Lord. But God as I begin this new life. Lord I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't have any answers. I don't come to churches like this with some really neat little strategy to lay out. I don't know what to do. But I'm longing to see you do what you know. 
needs to happen. And so, Lord, with all my heart, I say, let the fire fall. And let it be on me. Let it be on us. Let it begin. And let it spread. Until this community, maybe one day even this nation is never the same. This is our prayer, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to open the altar up right now. And again, tomorrow night I'm going to just share what God did in changing my life, hundreds and hundreds of campuses and churches. But we're not about the past. I'll tell you a story about the past so we can pray for what God's going to do in the present. Are you ready for God to move now? Are you ready for God to move here in your life, in your family, in your church? Why don't you take a few moments while we sing? Why don't you come and pray and seek the Father? And if you need to talk to somebody, then, then uh, Pastor Keith, Pastor Dave will be here to talk with you. You know what? There may be somebody here tonight and somebody invited you and you're going, I didn't know this was what this was about. I, I just thought it was this nice religious thing and this something is, this is not what I expected. If that's what you're sensing, great, because that's God whispering to you that it is time for you to meet Jesus, for your life to change forever. Okay, so you, you come, share with one of these pastors. I need to know Jesus. I don't want to leave this place without knowing him. All right, so we're going to sing. And as we sing, all right, as we sing, I'm going to bow here. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pray for you. Who will come and join me? As you're coming, you're saying, Lord, let the fire fall. I'm ready. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name.